Welcome to This Time in History. I'm Matthew. Unfortunately, my co-host Stephen couldn't be with us. And guys, bear, bear with me. Uh, my voice is not 100%. I've been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of interacting lately, so I apologize. But with me today is Joel Carroll. He's the author of The Book of Joel, Cunning, Baffling, and Powerful. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you, brother. Glad to be on. Um, so, y- y- you know... I assume you've listened to this podcast, so you know we're we're all about hearing uh, success stories, survivor stories. But you know, along the way, there's the struggles. So I'm going to throw it to you. You can start um, with your story, however you like. If you want to start in your childhood, how whatever makes sense. And if I have any questions, I'll ask them. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. So I am a 43 year old recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I also suffer from PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, and intermittent explosive disorder, which means I'm very cool, calm, collected until somebody hits that pinpoint inside me that I just snap. And I learned I had rage since I was 10 years old, so that's 33 years that I've, we've known that I've had rage and that was about five years before I became an alcoholic and an addict so I was born in 1978 on October Friday the 13th in 1978 in Mesa Arizona on the suburbs of Phoenix Arizona my father was military had older sister my mom and we moved from the Phoenix area and went to Virginia for two years and then we went to Europe in the early 80s 1983 and it was beautiful i loved it out there i played soccer for three years the only american on the on the club went skiing in austria in the alps i was in a mickey mouse commercial in amsterdam awesome what life was cool man (laughs) you know everything was cool and then there was also some times though that just being a curious young man i would walk around the neighborhood in holland and i remember the first time me and the boys in the neighborhood went to a Dutch candy shop and my mother didn't give me any gilders that day. And I'm used to having a little pocket full of change and we'd go to the little Dutch candy shop where the little woman would just, you know, sell us our sweets. But the one time that I didn't have it and I walked over there with the, the two brothers, I felt out of place. I felt out of place and that was the first time in my life that I felt like a resentment that I couldn't have something that I wanted at that time. So as the, the brothers were walking out of the, the candy shop and the little lady was walking back to her house, I crept back in through the candy shop in the aisles and I started grabbing handfuls of candy. She took off running out that door and I, it gave me an adrenaline rush. It really did. That adrenaline rush lasted 28 years me just taking from people little boys weren't happy that i did that they were shocked i was shocked while i'm sitting there you know stuffing my face full of sweets but it did something to my spirit and it felt like you know i could go out here and just take whatever i want when i want it and i don't gotta work for it talking about a six-year-old boy we also lived by a graveyard we would walk up this hill, it's like 142 concrete steps up this grassy hill to our bus stop. And every morning when I walked past this graveyard through this chain link fence, 
just felt like something was pulling me or calling me from this graveyard. My older sister, the other kids, they didn't, it was nothing to them. They're just laughing, joking, hitting each other, walking up the steps and fooling around. But for me, it, this is going on three, four years that I just felt a presence that was calling me through this chain link fence. Never went in there, but I would get off the bus in the afternoon and walk down, you know, those steps or run down the hill. And I would still feel that, that ominous feeling of something tugging at me, tugging at my spirit. So one night my father was traveling for the military, which he did a lot. My mother was sleeping, my sister was sleeping, our dog was sleeping, I was sleeping. But I felt like my mom was looking over me or my sister came into the room and was looking at me and I felt that presence of somebody walking into the room. Kind of opened my eyes and looked over and standing two feet from my bed was like a burnt bloody corpse standing on all fours with hooves. And his eyes were glowing and I didn't understand. I thought I was dreaming or having a nightmare. So I pinched myself and it didn't go away. So I was terrified. I wet the bed. I started crying slowly. I didn't want to breathe. So I was trying to hold my breath. And eventually I, I slid out of the bed and I ran out of the room having a panic attack. I started throwing up in the hallway trying to yell for my mom. I just couldn't yell because the vomit. I was banging on her door and she woke up and she grabbed me and she held me. I was trying to explain to her that there was a demonic entity in the room in the bed looking over me. So the next morning when I was getting ready for school, I slept in her bed and the dog cowboy, he came in and I took a shower in the morning and the dog was in our bathroom and I made sure he went everywhere I went. And I went to school thinking about it. I was on the bus looking out the window. My best friend Michael was asking me why, what am I looking at? And I didn't want to tell him. I didn't want him to think I was a freak or anything like that. And I didn't want anybody else to think I was a weirdo. So I went throughout the school that whole day and just looking out the window. And at this time there was a lot of um, terrorist attacks in Belgium. Mm -hmm. in Brussels and Holland and all that it was the Armenian terrorist organizations and they would call in bomb threats to this school called Ascent <clears throat> which had the curriculum for four different countries and it was a massive school so we were always dealing with that so we got on the bus and I was finally going to get the courage enough to tell Michael that I was looking out the window for this demonic entity and it was real it wasn't a nightmare and the bus stopped and he got off the bus and I remember him turning around and waving at me and I stood up and I waved out the bus and that was the last time I saw my best friend. He died like two hours later. He was playing with his toys in his yard and he picked up his juice and there was a bumblebee in his juice and he was allergic to bumblebees and he drank it and it went in his throat and it stung him in the throat while he was trying to fight to get out and it closed his oh. passageways so he couldn't breathe anymore. So within 16 hours, you know, I had this demonic presence in my room I remember, you know, always thinking about this graveyard calling me, something tugging at me. And when my mother told me that afternoon that Michael passed away because she was good friends with his mom and my father and his father played fast pitch softball for the military and would travel to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know. My mom always talked about God, you know, my father, not so much because of his past experiences in life that he wasn't willing to talk about. So I have a best friend that passed away, a demonic presence that's 
tormenting me. I ended up starting to see shadows that other people weren't seeing. Mm-hmm. And I was conflicted. You know, if there is a God, why would a, a child die? You know, I'd pray at night as a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy, and there was no trumpets playing. There was no super powerful voice and a light that shined down on my bed. There was none of that. So super curious. I've always been a spiritual being my entire life. You know, having that sixth sense, I could feel people's energy when they're irritated. I could feel a manifestation of evil when it's coming into the room or manifesting into a person. At this time, I just started being curious. I stole my mother's lighter, and I almost set a woman's house on fire. Not meaning to, but I picked up some dry leaves in her carport right across the way from the graveyard. And almost caught that poor lady's house on fire. And just a lot of questions internally. Then my father was like, yo, we're about to go back to Phoenix. The military's taking us back to Arizona, where my mother's from. My brother's father's from Oklahoma. So we go back there for three years. In elementary school, you know, life was better. I, you know, not thinking about this all the time, still having it in my mind that at any point in my life, somebody can die just like that from something as simple as a bee. So I had a lot of friends. You know, I'm a small dude when it comes to stature, huge heart, small, small guy. All my friends were bigger than me. Girlfriends were bigger than me. Friend girls were bigger than me. I was just that little dude everywhere I went. I had a lot of friends. Wasn't the most popular. But I had a lot of friends. We would ride our bikes. We would go around chilling. We'd go swimming a lot because it's super hot in Arizona. And this new kid in our school was the same stature and build as I was, but he has blonde hair and blue eyes. And he didn't like me for some reason. So all of a sudden, everybody in third grade is like, yo, this kid wants to fight you. And I'm like, oh. in my mind, I'm like, I don't know how to fight. I've done karate, but I'm not any good at it. My favorite movie at that point in the 80s was Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio. Like, I watched it a thousand times. I used to watch boxing with my father. He would come in from trips in military, grab his beer, get some nachos, and just start watching Mike Tyson fighting, Roberto Duran, Hagler. So he's an avid boxing fan, and he boxed in the military. So all I knew was watching boxing, watching Karate Kid. I wanted to be a fighter. I used to kick and punch his punching bag all the time. So after school, where everybody would meet up at the... uh, by a golf course, and it wasn't a nice one. There's this ice cream truck with this Mexican man that was selling ice cream, cherry bombs, fake cigarettes, candy cigarettes, and everybody would just mob around that ice cream truck. So my buddy, we're gonna go. You're gonna go fight Jeremiah right now, and I was terrified. So we go there, and they're like, "You're not gonna be a chicken, are you?" I'm like, "I ain't no chicken. I'll fight him. I'm not scared." But the whole time, I wanted to poop my pants. Like, I want to throw up in my mouth. I was shaking. I'm not scared. I got this. I was terrified. So we get there, and there's like 60 kids in a huge circle on a tee-off green. And that kid, Jeremiah, was standing right in the middle. So they kind of pushed me through that that crowd. And our friend girls, they were like, don't do it. You're going to get in trouble. The police are going to come. And I turn around. And I'm like, I'm not scared. So with all these kids yelling names, and, and, and it was so loud and vibrant. I didn't know what else to do before he came at me, so I, I put my arms up like Ralph Macchio. I lifted my knee, and I was going to do the karate kid crane kick on his face. And when he came charging at me, I missed. 
<laughs> when I missed, 55 of those kids were laughing at me. Five of them weren't. They were like, get up, get up, get up. He was looking down at me, calling me names. I'm a weirdo. I'm a punk. What a clown. Something took over me. Except for like four or five, a little group of kids with their hand over their mouth. And there's a body just laying there. So I go home. I'm confused. I'm looking in the mirror. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm like, man, what the heck's going on? And I go to school the next morning, and there's multiple law enforcement agency vehicles parked at the office at the school. And I walk in the, to the classroom, and it was quiet, and the teacher said, Joel, can you come with me, please? So I'm walking to the office. I go in there, and the principal's talking with my mother, the police officers in there questioning other kids, which are my friends. And I go in there, and I'm confused. They're like, what happened yesterday? While they're talking to me and questioning me, I'm looking through the windows to the other offices through the blinds and I'm seeing my friends pointing at the office where I'm at with my mother. They're like, what happened yesterday? And I said, kid wanted to fight me. I wasn't going to say no, but I don't know what happened after that. And they're like, tell us the truth. And I'm like, I am telling you the truth. When your buddies are over there pointing at you saying that you picked up a painted rock off the golf course and started beating them. I'm just like, that never happened. You know what I mean? I don't remember that ever happening. So they thought I was lying. My mother thought I was lying. But the reality is, I still don't remember that. I just blacked out. So the kid ended up being in the hospital for three weeks to a month. Mm-hmm. And I ended up on in-school suspension in this little cubicle. And again, I was this nice kid. I love sports. I was just cool. Just a little fella, man. And I get irritated or somebody disrespects me, which is my trigger. You embarrass me or disrespect me, that's my trigger. That is it right there. And I do everything I can to, to stay focused within my own spiritual means. So I leave the office after doing all my schoolwork in this dark little room, cubicle, and two of his buddies come out and they're like, you freak, you weirdo, you want to be karate kid, where's your rock now? And I was waiting for my friends to come around the corner because I didn't like the way they were talking to me. And they kept calling me all kinds of names, freak, go home to your mommy. And I snapped. After about 30 seconds of them talking like that to me, I ran after them. They got caught off guard and they took off past the buses into a cul-de-sac and ran into an abandoned house. And they closed the door on my fingers and I was crying from the pain, but I wasn't because I was numb inside. It was happening to me again. So I'm looking through this this window without any curtains, and they're still talking. They're talking through the window, and they're, uh-huh, you crush your fingers, you baby, what a loser, you're a wacko. And I just started, like, clenching my teeth, like, so hard I could have shattered my mouth. And that's what happens when I get angry. And I looked at him, and I heard my buddy Ryan running down from the school, and he was just yelling at me, no. I looked at him again, I looked at my buddy again, and I just punched through the window, and I grabbed one of the kids through the window, and there's glass everywhere, there's blood. I picked up glass, and I tried to stab him in the head with it, but my buddy grabbed my backpack, and he just freaking swung me around. The other kid ran out the house, pulled his friend, and I go home, and the police knock on the door. My mom's like, what is going on? Again, my father's not around, you know what I mean? He's taking care of the family, being in the military. Mm-hmm. My mother had to deal with all this stuff. So then we moved back to Virginia. Now I'm depressed. 
anxious, have to go somewhere and meet new friends, create another little world for myself all over again, and I have no decision in it. So super scary, new school, don't know if anybody's going to like me, don't know if I'll fit in. And we went to Virginia, and it ended up being okay. Ended up finding a lot of friends, ended up playing basketball, Little League baseball. Life was really good at this point in my life. It was the best time of my life. When I was 12 years old, in 1990, it was the best year of my life. Absolutely. No care in the world. Playing playing sports in the neighborhood with the neighborhood fellas. And it was really, really cool. My parents decided they wanted to move to a different house two miles away with land. About two acres of land. This is about 1993. <clears throat> And this was the transition summer for me to go to high school with my older sister and all my friends from Lake Ridge Middle. Well, the county of Prince William County of Virginia said anybody that lives on this side of the border of this street going to Garfield High School, anybody on this side is going to remain going to Woodbridge. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to go with my friends. I want to go to high school with my sister. And my parents pleaded that I could go to that school. And I said, no, your daughter can go remain at Woodbridge because she's been there. But your son, unfortunately, will be going to Garfield High School. I didn't know anybody in Garfield. And I had no idea what I was walking into going into a high school. Again, 4'11", 80 pounds, going into high school. Teeny, teeny little dude. And I went in there. Wasn't used to riding a school bus in years because I'd ride my bike. Now I'm riding a school bus. Dozens of kids, packed, loud, scared. I go into school and I'm intimidated. There's gangs, segregation. There's girls that look like women from the Playboy magazines I used to steal out of my daddy's closet. Like, they're developed. And I'm like, what is, it's like an ocean of humans. And I'm like, this little dude, where's Waldo? In the middle of this massive hallway and i'm like what do i i can't even so i stayed playing basketball at the boys and girls club aau basketball the gym all the time by my house that's how i got out of my head just grab a ball grab a hoop i wasn't the greatest never the worst and i would go and i'll play basketball basketball became my life trading sports cards ended up being my coping skill and i was great at it very very good at it I tried out for the basketball team and they laughed at me because these dudes were big and they could play ball. And they were my age. They're like, aren't you in the wrong school? You look like you should be in elementary school. <laughs> it pissed me off. It really did. It pissed me off. It hurt my heart. And I didn't even make the cut in basketball in the high school. And I didn't know what to do after that. So one day I'm watching these guys at the gym playing basketball and I admired the way they they played basketball. I admired the way that people respected them. I admired the way that they carried themselves. It was almost like from a movie. And I went home one day dribbling my basketball and I took my shoes off. I saw a car that I didn't know in our driveway. And I walked in and two of those men that were playing basketball on that court that I would sit back and watch on the bleachers when I was resting, they were sitting on my couch talking with my sister, my mother, and my father. I'm like, oh my gosh, why are these gang members in my house? Mm-hmm. Ended up being my sister was dating one of these men. And after that day, he put me under his wing. He never wanted me to get affiliated. 
was never his agenda. He respected my father working at the Pentagon. He respected my mother. And, and he may have loved my sister, but he had many women. And he was a drug dealer. So he would take me to college basketball games, Georgetown. I used to watch Allen Iverson play basketball. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to try this liquor thing out, this alcohol thing out, since a lot of people in high school are doing it. My parents have been doing it for 40 years. They're getting down, or 25 years. They're getting down. They're drinking all the time. So before I made a plan, made a scenario, before my dad goes to work, or after my dad goes to work, after my mom leaves the driveway to go work at the bank, I'm going to go in her liquor cabinet. I'm up for a little bit. I'm going to go get some of her half-smoked cigarettes out of the ashtray, put them in a little sandwich baggie. I'm going to go to the bus stop, and I'm going to drink an almond-smoked cigarette before I go to school that day. That was it. I took a chug of that. It turned me into a seven-foot giant, I promise you. I started smoking cigarettes, drinking, and I had sex with my next-door neighbor who took my virginity all within a, a month or two, and it changed my life. Needless to say, I didn't collect sports cards. <laughs> I was more in tune with having sex with beautiful females, drinking some liquor, and smoking some cigarettes. So, started hanging around a lot of different neighborhoods with a lot of different people. My parents thought I was still playing basketball the whole time before I went home. Mm-hmm. In fact, I met a beautiful girl from West Philly. She went to the same high school as I did, and she liked how stupid I was. She liked how I carried myself, and it was a lot because of the alcohol. So she put a note in my hat that fell in the hallway gorgeous female and I was like no freaking way this girl wants to be with me so I ended up dating this beautiful female for a very long time she had the same last name I did her and her sister so people actually thought we were married in high school so I'm hanging around her neighborhood I'm meeting a lot of different people people think that I'm really the little brother of my sister's boyfriend because he's like yo that's my little brother I would get to altercations at school people would be like yo leave him alone that's so and so's little bro and they would turn around and they would walk off they'd be like damn I didn't know that so now I'm getting a little bit of courage. Now I'm meeting so many people in these neighborhoods in this county that I'm bringing them to the table for this gang. Once I kept doing that, in my mind, wanting to be a part of this gang and becoming affiliated, I'm doing it. And my sister's boyfriend took me to the mall and got me a shirt. And it says, go hard or go home. And on the back it says, the omen, O-M-E-N. He's like, that's your alias. I'm like, I'm not even affiliated. He was like, you're putting in work, though. He was like, I appreciate that. And I still don't want you to get affiliated, but this is your alias. It fits you. You actually look like the kid from the Omen movies. So in my mind, it changed my whole life. I was born on Friday the 13th. I'm a Libra. The balance between good and evil. My real name is Joel. It's biblical. I'm like, man, this is perfect. I see spirits. I've been tormented by demons when bad things happen. I'm like a little hurricane. It was just, it was the perfect alias form. It, it blew my head up. It blew my head up. Needless to say, I went to go get affiliated on my own without him in the county at that point. But when I went to go get affiliated, the G said straight up, what are you going to bring to the table? And when I opened my mouth, somebody pushed him out the way, hit me flush in my temple, and I flew down the stairs. They were like, get the fuck out of here. I'm sorry for my language. It's okay. It was like, it was like yo, get the fuck out of here. Okay, ass. He's like, go don't belong here. I'm colorblind. Red, green, colorblind. I saw purple out of one eye for like four hours. I saw orange out of another eye for about four hours. Don't even know those colors well. And he hit me so hard. I'd never been hit. Even in that fight, I'd never got hit. Nobody ever got hit. You know, I blacked out and hit him with the, uh, the boulder. 
So I'm sitting at the bottom of the steps. I just got rejected. I just got rejected for basketball. I, I'm just, I'm torn. I'm, I'm just drinking a lot. I'm starting to smoke weed. And you could go across the, the, the bridge to Washington, D.C., to the Jamaicans. They'll freaking dip your cigarette in embalming fluid. They call it the sherm, buck naked. You let that cigarette dry and you're smoking formaldehyde. So I started getting addicted to smoking formaldehyde, going to school on formaldehyde. Then I became an LSD abuser. Started tripping on LSD, going to school, frying off acid, chugging moonshine. I'm just, I'm going all out. I'm still in these neighborhoods. And now it's becoming a, an issue with me and my girlfriend because different gang members from different gangs, even from the gang I wanted to get affiliated in, are trying to get at my girlfriend. I'm losing it. I'm like losing it. I'm still a teeny little dude. And people are like, what's this punk doing on our street? Well, my girlfriend lived on that street. Gang members everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'd be walking home from the, the, the gas station with her, and they would pull up in ski mask, and they'd walk up and put a gun in my mouth, see what I would do. Wow. I ran. I didn't run. I didn't run a lot. But at this point, I ran. I was jumping back fences, and I was going towards a friend of mine who is in that gang. But when he got initiated, it was like, all right, cool. We're smoking blunts, but now it's time for you to leave. You know, I got to go do something. No questioning. I, I understood. I understood that he turned into a soldier. You know, but I ran to his house. The whole time, years later, I found out it was the gang I was trying to get initiated in that were putting a ski mask on. And they were seeing if I was going to run. And I ran once, but there was multiple times where I didn't run. They're like, you think you're tough. You know what I mean? There's a lot of killings going on in this time. And eventually, I got affiliated. Within about a year, year and a half. I wouldn't stop. I was a tenacious little son of a bitch. And I just ended up just really, really going all in like his shirt when he gave me go hard or go home. And I went hard, man. Had a lot of females I was uh, cheating on my girlfriend with. Thought I was like the man. Now I'm in the gang. Listen to Bone Thugs and Harmony, wearing army fatigues and ski masks. My parents still think I'm a good kid. But then I end up almost killing a kid in school. Because he was having an altercation with a good friend of mine who ended up being a brother in my gang. And I didn't want to do it, but he didn't listen to me. So I snapped and I, when he was already on the ground, I kicked his forehead with my Timberland boot like it was a football. And I sent him to the hospital. Then I ended up threatening to murder a guy in a different gang over my girlfriend. And uh, they took us to the police station in the school for mediation and said, did this help? And he and I both laughed and we're just like, oh, you just gave us a stage to threaten each other. So, in the 90s, 97 was one night on, in autumn, in the fall, gang wars everywhere. My relationships in turmoil with my girlfriend. And I ended up on this night going around and committing a lot of serious violent acts. The most I've ever done in my entire life combined in one night to people and them doing it to us, but we, it was just a, it was just an all-out war. And the guy that I was doing it with, he ended up getting murdered. But I went home that night because I felt, you know, my friends have told on me before. And after I did all this stuff, I didn't feel like I wanted to hang around, even though they were my gang. I still just, I heard about people testifying in prison that were older than me. And I went, I said, drop me off at my parents' house. They're like, yo, what's up? I was like, nah, I'm good, I'm good. I just need to go home and change and all that shit. Mm-hmm. So I walk in. And I tried to go upstairs. My dad said, come downstairs now. 
So I walk back downstairs. I sit by the fireplace. They're sitting there drinking their their liquor, and they're functioning alcoholics their entire until the end there. And uh, so we pulled you out of high school. I was like, "What?" I immediately start thinking about my girlfriend and the other gang members trying to get with my girlfriend. And it says you're moving to Arizona. I said, "We're moving to Arizona." He said, "No, you're moving to Arizona." What the heck am I gonna do in Arizona? He said, "You're going to live with your grandparents." I'm like, yo, nah, I'm not going. Are you kidding me? No. They said, you're, you don't have a high school no more. You're done. We already pulled you out. You get threats. People are threatening to blow up our house, kill your family. Like, we're done. You're going. Pack your stuff. You're going to live in Apache Junction, Arizona. I'm like, what the heck? And then my spirit told me, just listen to them. Hear them out. You just spent hours and hours and hours running around the, driving around the, the county committing all these crimes. So I was, I was super torn because I, in my heart, I love my girlfriend. In my heart, I really did. But the alcohol and the drug use ended up taking over and I wasn't a good boyfriend anymore. So I ended up going to Arizona. And in Arizona, I did all my family dirty and I stole from them. I stole their guns. I went around and started huffing paint, uh, doing methamphetamine. As a young person, shooting the guns at people that were at a party, thought they were tough thinking I was tough and I had to use a gun, you know, and it got too wicked on methamphetamine super quick. Mm-hmm. And it ended up the, the bikers I was using with as a kid ended up being connected to one of my uncles who did 10 years in prison for being a methamphetamine cook, but I didn't know they knew each other and I wasn't from Tucson. So it all wrapped up real evil, real quick. Uh, I went back to Virginia. At this point, I'm homeless. I just did all my family uh, dirty in Arizona by them opening their doors and me just screwing females in their house and stealing their stuff. And I was addicted to the lifestyle, man. Mm-hmm. It wasn't alcohol. It wasn't dope. It was addicted to everything. The females, the stealing, the freaking drama. People wanted to kill me. Me wanting to kill them. It was. I was a, an adrenaline junkie for that mess. So I'm homeless. I'm sleeping people's floors sleeping on their couches when i wrote my book and i did my 12 steps my inventory with my sponsor ended up counting that i lived with 48 different families in my life when i had a home when i had a clean loving home i slept with 48 uh, i lived with 48 different families in my life it's crazy floors bathroom floors porches balconies couch surfing So at this point, I had an ultimatum. I'm helping set up band equipment, going around uh, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. My gang has a band, bands everywhere. They have the Battle of the Bands. And it helped me to stay out at all hours of the night because I had really nowhere to call home. My, my parents were fed up. They were scared. My father gave me an ultimatum. You go into the United States military or you go into the National Guard to get a job, we'll open our doors. So I did that. I'm an intelligent person. I put my mind to it. It's going to happen. There's just no stopping me. That's a fact. So I get into the Virginia Army National Guard because I'm colorblind. I was a 92 Yankee supplies unit, like Forrest Gump, taking apart guns, serial numbers, putting them all back together, supplies. And I loved it. I loved it. But I would not stop using. And I got honorably discharged very, very quickly. And my mom broke, broke her heart. 
and I'm a mama's boy, and she destroyed my room, and she broke the pictures. She she threw the dressers out. She just flipped my bed, and they said, "You're gone. Get out. No more." And it broke her heart. And my father was fed up, so I ended up back out on the streets. That was like my god shot at that moment to be a man. Uh, become a military service member in the United States, changed my life, and I just didn't have the means to be a reliable human at that point. So I'm out at a club. People start shooting at this club. I get a distress call from one of my G's, and I ran off stage, opened the keyboard bag, started passing out Glock handguns. When I turned around, and I was on two pills of ecstasy, a bottle of Canadian mist liquor, and I smoked uh, formaldehyde. And when I turned around, I saw somebody about to hit another man with the police backlight, the 17-inch one. Mm-hmm. The other dude grabbed it, and he pushed him. He was like, no, nah, man, wrong dude. And he threw it against the wall. I ended up being the wall. It hit me in my skull, and it gave me a stroke. So I'm laying on the ground. There's blood everywhere. Everybody's screaming, Omen got shot. Omen got shot. I can't move. I can hear, but I can't move. The lights were out in my head. The lights were still on in the club. And I ended up in the hospital because they're but because there were so many gang members in the hospital and they were afraid and they didn't want any drama, they, they cut my long hair on my left side of my skull. Mm-hmm. They stitched it up and they sent me on my way. No CAT scan. They didn't tell me I had a stroke. I learned 10 years later after a car accident. And I just lived like that. I stuttered for six months. I couldn't go out in the cold because of the pain. I was afraid. Uh, carried a gun everywhere because I couldn't fight no more. Fighting was not an option. I was handicapped. I was handicapped. So I was sleeping in other people's houses. A buddy of mine and his nice family in the suburbs of Virginia said I could sleep in their their basement. And during this time, he had a lot of girlfriends, and he introduced me. Uh, well, while he was sleeping with one of them upstairs at this girl's house, there was another beautiful female sitting in the living room with me, and we were talking. And I was still slow, you know, uh, getting past the stuttering. And ended up, uh, we slept together, and I got her pregnant. So I ended up having two females call me the same night at my buddy's house. And I was hungover, I was drunk, I was doing so much cocaine because it hurt, my head hurt. And I wasn't willing to go back to a hospital after the other one did what they did by releasing me. So I'm drinking, 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 cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. Drinking, 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 cocaine, cocaine. So I was sleeping in his basement. He was out doing what he needed to do. Phone rang. I had a friend of mine call me, said she was pregnant with my kid. Just a friend. And I slept with her for years. I say, all right, I'll call you. I'm hungover. I need more dope. So I lay back down, and the phone rings. And I pick it up, and this girl's crying. She's like, Joel, I'm pregnant. I'm like, what the heck? Like, what kind of joke is this? And she's devastated. She's got, like, this family. Her father's military. Like, a super perfect family almost. But nobody's perfect. But it was so much. I mean, just amazing family. It was different. Mm-hmm. For her and just my friend. It was much different. Ten minutes later, I got off the phone. Ten minutes later, I hear banging on the door. And and I'm like, man, it sounds like SWAT team, bounty hunters. So it takes me a while to get up at this point from my injury. So I'm getting up, plus being hungover. And I hear somebody running down the stairs. And they go open the door, and I hear somebody get beat the hell up. So they open the bedroom door, throw him across the room. And it's two dudes doing a home invasion. They're like, where's the dope? And he jumped on the bed and he put a gun in my mouth and I jumped off the bed and put myself in the corner and I'm hiding and I'm shaking because I don't want to get hit in the head again. So they stole everything out of the closet that I own. 
They didn't steal anything from my buddy. That was the karma for me doing everything I was doing. They stole everything I owned out of that closet brand. Well, that next day, I was running around trying to find the guys that did it with my gang, and it didn't work out. But we got pulled over. Mm -hmm. While we're in the McDonald's parking lot, you're searching the van. On the other side of town, where I'm staying at, those two guys came back to finish the job. But my buddy and three of our friends from Puerto Rico pulled up, and they were all feeling really good and drinking and cocaine and chilling. And they jumped out of, out of the bushes in the backyard, and my buddies weren't playing it. And they ended up beating these guys almost to death. Um, they ended up in the hospital for a very long time. They had to stitch their faces back up. And I go back. My buddies dropped me off. So if I would have got dropped off by myself, instead of us getting pulled over across town at that exact time, they would have killed me. Again, I'm a small guy. You know, I just had a stroke. These guys would have beat the life out of me. And a lot of these situations happened in my life where I'd go reach for a door and something said, don't do it. And I walk away. And my friend got assassinated in a bathtub, buck naked with two other guys. And they're laying in a body of the bathtub with a pile of body. But I was going to go to the house to play cards. Something said, don't. The next morning, they're on the news and they're all dead. One ended up living, got shot in the back of the head. He told the police what happened. You know, a lot of these scenarios in my life. So I got kidnapped when I was addicted to crack cocaine. The drug dealers, they liked me a lot, but they liked their money more. And the woman that I was sleeping with owed them money. And though she had a nice job and a nice house, it wasn't that stereotypical stigma of a crackhead. She was coming home from work and she wasn't answering the phone. And I started to feel that evil manifesting. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was, it was over once they opened the truck door. And I was in the woods drinking wild turkey with them. And they ended up hitting me in the head where I already had a stroke. He picked up a cinder block that I was sitting on. He started beating me with that cinder block. Ooh, that's and I good. defecated in my pants. He hit me so hard, I, I went to the bathroom in my pants. And I tried to escape. And it just didn't work. He put the gun on my forehead. He said he would kill me. And they put me in the back of the truck. They were going to kill me. They went from the, the paved road to a dirt road to no road with him in the back seat with me. I apologize for my smell. And I started crying. I wasn't bawling, but I, I had tears dropping. Mm -hmm. I was trying to ask God for my sin, forgive my sins, but I couldn't. I had so many in my life, I couldn't ask for any. One of those kids ended up being mine. It wasn't my friend. I ended up being the girl with the amazing family, you know, and. I just thought about my daughter and her mom and before they were going to kill me, the phone rang and it ended up being the woman I was sleeping with. She was about 20 years older than I was. And they started laughing and the driver was like, yo, what do you want me to do with him, cousin? And he said, this kid's blessed, man. People have been saying he's a blessed kid. He started laughing. He was like, that's a divine intervention for you, bro, because we was about to kill your little ass. So the insanity of the disease of addiction is when somebody that's mentally healthy goes through a traumatic experience like that, they go seek help and they walk away. What I did is I took off my underwear, I cleaned myself, and 15 minutes later I'm smoking crack cocaine. That's the, the insanity of the disease of addiction. Just got kidnapped, they'll beat me a few inches from my life, put a gun on my head, had it held to my, my waist, and I could smell the dirt being thrown on me because one of my brothers was killed and they didn't find his body for two months on the side of a highway. 
So I felt like him at that moment. So God spared me another moment, man. And uh, I left the woods. I ended up robbing a jewelry store with some guys. That movie Scream, I put a Scream mask on. And instead of being a reliable man and getting a job, and I had a job. I just wanted to use that money for me to drink and use. Mm. I ended up putting on a mask, knowing in my heart that I didn't trust anybody, especially one of the dudes that I did it with. And the female was in the car. We masked up and we pulled a jewelry store heist. And she got on her two neck, two way next tail radio in the nineties and she was like, shit, 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 shit. And I took off. Everybody took off in different directions. I never got any jewelry. They all got incarcerated. I ran to Florida and I ended up staying, which is a whole different story in my book. And I reached out to my family and my dad said, you need to do what you need to do because I'm about to lose my security clearance at the Pentagon. You're a convicted felon. The gang task force is looking for you. Feds are looking for you for a robbery, a a jewelry store robbery. And it took me a while, but I turned myself in. I didn't want my father to lose his security clearance. That was the first selfless thing I've done in my life at that point was actually turning myself in in Manassas, Virginia. Mm You know, a lot of people heard of the D.C. sniper, Muhammad and Malvo, going around killing everybody. That was in my neighborhood, man. So I was incarcerated in the same facility as those two dudes. And I go on the stand. I, I, I go to court, and my two buddies get on the stand, and they point me out, and they testified against me. And they did it in such a way that they felt they didn't testify against me. But I told everybody all along that I was in Florida, and I had nothing to do with it. One said he dropped me off in the area, and the other one said I was there, but I was a lookout in the trees. We already had a female that was a lookout in the car. They knew that. They caught her first. So then it was murder on my mind, and I stayed incarcerated, and I had a lot going on. I started seeing shadows again when I was incarcerated, and I was clean at that point. I was getting closer to God. I truly feel that that's why I started seeing shadows again. So I get out, man, and and it was... uh, it was tough. It was tough not killing these people. My plan was to go to the park and shoot them in their face in front of everybody and not caring. But there was a huge tug of war within my spirit. Is my life worth living or losing for other people's lives? At this point, people are getting caught for everything. It could be two, three years down the road, you're getting caught. It's just as a matter of technology and the way they're about, you know, can do things now. I was like, I either kill myself, kill them, or I can, you know, go to prison for 30 years for murdering all these people. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge, huge, huge war that lasted 13 years. Every wow. day I woke up, I had homicidal ideation. I wanted to wake up, I wanted to murder these people. Wow. I got addicted to ecstasy for a long time, which made me happy. So that helped me out a lot from getting out of that mindset. Then I, I met a female after I left the woods when I got kidnapped. And, and when I was homeless, her and her mother, her mother worked at the Pentagon. But look, this is how the addiction is, man. My father was in the Pentagon in 9-11. Somebody came to get me at work. I was so high on cocaine. I was waiting for my dope dealer to show up. He's like, your father's at work, my brother-in-law. You know, your pops is at work. The cell phone towers are down. Your mom's freaking out. Let's go to her house and console her and be there for her. And I was like, what are you talking about, bro? I'm waiting for more cocaine. Get the hell out of my face. My own father. My own father. That's the insanity of disease. It got a hold on me, man. And he's alive. He didn't get killed. You know what I mean? And I'm appreciative of that now that I'm clean. And uh, 
I was there in Louisiana, man. I went to Louisiana with this, my girlfriend and her mom that gave me a place to stay when I was homeless. And I got a job, finally got a license. And they said, you know what, let's get you out of here. They didn't know I was a crack fiend. They knew I was a shitty alcoholic, but they didn't know I was a crack fiend. I hit that because I was such a bad alcoholic. My girlfriend stayed and she drove around the city and, and the suburbs trying to find me all the time. And uh, so let's go to Louisiana. Let's get you out of here. Again, I immediately start thinking about my daughter, like I did in the past, my girlfriend, when people are like, let's help you, let's get you away, let's start your life over. And the thought was great. You know, I detoxed while I drove across the country in this big-ass Penske truck. And I was detoxing the entire time. And we moved down there. And I was like, you know what, this is going to be good for me. And then I got a job building swimming pools. And the first week I got that job, the guys on the construction site, they were smoking meth and they were smoking crack at my job. After work. Wow. So in my, in my book, the chapter's called Reality is Tricky. You know, I moved thousands of miles away to change, but I took myself with me. You know, the drugs didn't jump in the truck with me and pack themselves in a box. And when I open them, they jump back out and say, hey, I'm here. The drugs are here. No, I was going to get tested continuously until I had the self-will to stop. We all have that. We're all going to get tested. There's something that whoops us all. And it's not ever going to stop until we face it head on and overcome it. So needless to say, I became a crackhead all over again after I detoxed for myself. After a week and a half, I'm back at it smoking crack. The entire time I was in Louisiana. She did not know, her family did not know I was a crack fiend, but they knew I was a shitty alcoholic. Hurricane Katrina hits. I didn't care. I love rain. I love that stuff. They're worried about family members. I'm worried about crack cocaine. Hurricane Rita hits. I'm building swimming pools out there. Alligators walking around, mosquitoes everywhere. It was bad. Instead of going home with my girlfriend, I would be in these neighborhoods with abandoned houses on stilts. And I would be in these boarded up houses with a candle at night, shitting in buckets with mosquitoes biting all over me just so I could smoke this crack rock with strangers. I ended up being the weirdest one in the neighborhood. Crazy stuff, man. Wow. That's quite a so story. My family, yeah, it's crazy. So my family ended up moving from Virginia back to Arizona. My sister and her husband and kids moved. My parents moved. And they're like, why don't you come to Arizona? Let's get you cleaned up. And I moved to Arizona. I got a job at a pool company. I'm not doing any drugs anymore. I'm drinking. My family drinks. They get down. I'm talking relatives, parents, everybody. So I'm still getting... You know, drunk. And my wife, she doesn't drink. My girlfriend at the time, she didn't drink. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to change my life. We'll go. I could cook my butt off. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the Art Institute. I'm going to become a chef. So I'm building swimming pools, cleaning swimming pools, going to school. I'm excelling in school. After I had a stroke, after I got kidnapped, after the whole military thing. And I excel, and that opened the doorway to the Ritz-Carlton in the mountains here in Virginia, uh, Arizona. And I excel at that. I'm doing very well. Life is great. Take my wife. We go to the Virgin Islands. I propose to her in the middle of the ocean. I mean, life was good. Came home and I'm cooking my butt off. I got 3.5 GPA and, and Art Institute. People are calling me chef. I'm like, I'm the man. One evening, I felt like I wanted to drink. Went to my uncle's house where he sells methamphetamine. And I pick up a drink, we go bar hopping, and I get pulled over in my nice truck. 
At this point, I got $70,000 in the bank from a car accident when I learned that I had a stroke 10 years prior from the flashlight. To our home the day before Thanksgiving, and I got paranoid again because of my past. And I asked one of my relatives for meth. A little bit, just to stay up. Because I got to clean pools, go to school, work. I said, just let me do a little bit so I can, you know, protect our home. What ended up happening is I'm up all night on the couch staring at these windows and I see shadows coming in and people breaking in the house that weren't there. Get a DUI with my uncle and I quit life. At this point, I have a son. My wife's pregnant with another. I'm sad because I'm not there for my daughter. And I'm like, you know what? They took my truck. They took my license. I quit. My parents and my wife said, quit what? I quit life. Fuck all y'all. And I walked away. I walked away from my wife. We got pregnant, we got married, beautiful wedding, all that. And I walked away and I went to a relative's home and I put down the alcohol after 17 years and I picked up methamphetamine. And that was the most satanic, disturbing and perverted lifestyle that I have ever lived. And I truly feel it's the most evil portion of what life has to offer on this planet. And I was in and out of mental hospitals for two years. I was gonna commit suicide by cop with a machete I was gonna jump in front of a truck moving at 50 miles an hour in front of the psych hospital. I got braces before that happened and I always wanted braces. And I was so paranoid and so jacked up on this stuff that I peeled the braces off my teeth with pliers. Ooh. I was, I was a sick dude. I was a sick, sick man and Contemplating suicide in front of the hospital, I ended up turning myself into the psych hospital on my own this time. The police didn't have to handcuff me and take me in there. And I ended up staying in there and getting medicated, open-minded, ended up doing it that time. And I went to the Salvation Army rehab with men, no women. I didn't want any women in these rehabs because that just came part of the addiction on methamphetamine. And I ended up doing a six-month faith-based program with God and all these men from walks of life, different walks of life got a sponsor started doing the 12 step honestly i opened up and i did it and i graduated that program my wife at this point had two of my sons and she allowed me to go back home i didn't know how to be a dad i didn't know how to be a husband i didn't know how to be an employee that wasn't high or drunk i didn't know how to be anybody that wasn't a thief a liar a manipulator i didn't know how to be this new person but what i did was go to meetings talk about it and go to church i continued to do that that was what my life was based around. Go on to church, get that soul food, go to a meeting, shut up, listen. And eventually I became a co-chairman of the meeting and a manager at a car wash. I was an honest man for the first time in 28 years. I wasn't a thief anymore. I only made $7.90 an hour when I got out, but I was grateful because I was begging for food when I was homeless on meth. I was begging for food, 107 pounds at 34 years old. Wow. 107 pounds in these psych hospitals. So I ended up speaking around this city. People are like, man, you can talk, bro. Why don't you get in the behavioral health field? I said, I'm a felon. He said, bro, I did way more time in prison than you did. I was like, you work in the field? He's like, yo, I work in the field. I'm going to do this. So I go to my psych facility where I get my meds. I'm like, I want to become a peer support. She was like, you would be perfect because I had to do domestic violence classes at this place. And, you know, 
very quiet person, but when I talk, I start talking and I, I put that message out there. They're like, you could run this class. And I was like, oh. So after being at that meeting and going to church for about two and a half years, I ended up working in the same psych hospital. Police would handcuff me and throw me in. I ended up being an advocate in that hospital for four years with kids and men and women. And I, I shined. I freaking shined. Why? Because the icebreaker for me was this was my room. I stayed in this room for a long time. What? You were a patient here? I was a patient here. And I didn't want to be here. They're like, wow, bro, how did you do that? And I encouraged them to first, let's get off the dope. Let's put the bottle down. Let's get off the dope. And then we'll go one second at a time. This is a one second at a time deal here. And then rehab started opening around the city. And people were calling me be like, yo, we need somebody like you in these rehabs. You're a leader. Let's do it. So since 2017, I've been assisting with opening these rehabs. And just, I'm just being me. It doesn't matter what my title is. I'm going to be me regardless if I work at Amazon, work at McDonald's, or if I'm cutting somebody's tree down. Like, I'm going to be me regardless. And that's an authentic individual. I started sponsoring guys in the 12-step fellowship. My wife blessed me with four other sons. The greatest blessing out of all of it. My daughter is in my life. And she's 22 years old now. And you know, we flew out to D.C. in the Virginia area. And we, I had all five of my kids at one place at one time. And I spent the last nine years. I just got on February 10th. I just got my nine-year chip for being uh, clean and sober, man, one second at a time. And I'm an advocate in the behavioral health field, man, working with people that are homeless, people that want murder on their mind, on their mind or suicidal or they don't feel like anybody understands they've been incarcerated. They come out tattooed all up. You know, it's cool, man. I'm tatted up. You know, I go to work. They don't mind no more. It's a new generation, man. Now fentanyl everywhere. They got eight-month-olds overdosing on fentanyl. Eight-month-olds. Eight-month-olds. Yeah. Overdose, overdosing on fentanyl, man. So just doing my part, you know, to be able to come home and be a reliable person to me. I'm not a perfect person. I still got rage. Rage against the machine, man. I'm telling you, I'm cool. I open the door. I give you the shirt off. I can get my boots off my feet. You disrespect me, you know what I mean? I still snap, but I just know how to have restraint today. Restraint. Well, that's an, that's, am- it. that's an amazing story, though. You were down so low, and then you've done the work. You put the work in, and you you are where you are today, and that's amazing. Thank you, brother. Like, that is, uh, it's very inspiring, and I, and I hope that people listening... Uh, really get inspired um, people that are having problems with uh, drugs fentanyl is uh, it's big here in Canada too I had a I had a brother whom I never got to meet and he was uh, he was a crack addict I believe and uh, I don't know if he knew it or not but when he bought his last crack there was fentanyl in it I don't know if somebody laced it with it and he smoked it, and he passed away. So the way it's being manufactured now in these different countries, so fentanyl, you're talking South America, India, China. They're lacing everything. So methamphetamine has fentanyl, and it also has ecstasy, MDMA. Everything is everything now. Everything is everything. We don't know what we're getting, 
We think we're just going to get some cocaine and go chill and go to a bar or go to a club and hang out with family or whatever, and you die. It's just a new generation, man. It, it's a it's a it's a potion. You know, even if people don't believe in the Bible or anything like that, there's something I always speak about of the Old Testament. It just talks about witch doctors and sorcerers back in the day and how they created these potions mm -hmm. from these ingredients. And the people that weren't strong-willed and that were hurt and had diseases or they were sad, and they weren't right with a higher power, those witch doctors and cunning sorcerers would offer them blessing and that would give them a potion what happens when you're not feeling anymore anything like all of a sudden this potion curses that individual and you can't see a lot of people can't see the black around them or around us but it's starting to manifest and it rots that human being inside and out and they end up rotting their family rotting their neighborhood rotting their city their state their country the planet it's a potion you fast forward thousands and thousands and thousands of years later they're called drug dealers. They're just potion dealers. They're selling you a potion, and there's no means to a curse, uh, the cure for the curse. So for me, it was like, all right, I don't need God. I'm God. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to get out of it because I am tenacious. It didn't work. I've tried everything. I have tried everything. So I finally got down to a higher power and got spiritually fit. And the curse was released. I'm not cured. I'm not cured. I got PTSD from the things that happened in my in my in my addiction. But there is a means to peace within it, and all we're striving for is some peace on earth before we pass away peacefully. You know. So yeah, your buddy he he was cursed, man, and I was cursed for 19 years. It's a potion. It's crazy. Somebody broke that down for me. You know, it's it's wild. Well, this is an amazing story. Tell me, can you, uh, how did you come about the idea or the concept of uh, writing the book? So to get in the field, in the behavioral health field out here, you have to have a level one fingerprints clearance card because you're dealing with vulnerable adults and children in some of the places. So the state in which you live has to dissect your past. Anybody that's a felon, will get denied immediately, and then you have to do a good cause exception, right? Get all your, even if we weren't charged. So I got caught with a stolen car, and I was going to take the rap for it, and they found out who stole it. It was a group of people out of a car dealership. So I had to write a summary about that stolen car. I had to write a different summary about the jewelry store heist. I had to do a different summary about domestic violence with the machete, uh, DUI. I had to do summaries on it. I'm not educated. Nor did I care to be educated in high school or care about academics. So I'm on this laptop in 2015, two years into my recovery, and I start writing these summaries, right? And I don't know how to type. I don't even know what QWERTY means on the on the keyboard. So I'm typing it away, and I'm like, man, bro, that's good. That's good writing right there. And I'm sharing my story, my testimony. I'm going around churches. I'm going to all these places. And they're like, bro, put that in a book. That could be a Netflix special, man. So I started doing it. I get in the field, and that's when I worked at the psych hospital for four years. And I started writing my book in 2015. It took me six years. It just got published within the last six months. So I got an editor, because I don't know punctuation, but they're all my words, and it's from the heart. I don't need to be have a college degree to know my story. 
you know, and doing those 12 steps, I ended up doing my timeline from Friday the 13th on a weekend of a full moon back in 78, all the way through to right now, what I'm doing. And people can find the book on Google. If you type the book of Joel, J-O-E-L, cunning, baffling, powerful, you could get it anywhere. Barnes and Nobles, I just did a book signing at Barnes and Nobles. Uh, there's a huge 100,000 person event at the University of Arizona, which is a major, major college out here in the Southwest. I got invited to that, so I'm going to be doing a book signing with all these famous authors on Saturday morning. So um, what, a, what a process it's been, man. And so, yeah, you can look it up on Google. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Fulton Books out of Pennsylvania. Just type that whole thing in. I'm Joel Carroll, J-O-E-L-C-A-R-R-O-L-L, and you can get it anywhere now. So um, if you have a struggle with addiction and you want to go to rehab or you're contemplating going to rehab i did 13 months in rehab and to have a book that can inspire you is a huge deal on your downtime get this book and take it with you if you have a family member and you're a loved one of a family member that wants to understand the addict and why we do the stupid stuff that we do get this book and read it you'll you'll live my life you will live this and you will understand the way Depression, anxiety, peer pressure, all those still lack of services in the 90s. Why we do the things we do. Or if you just love a story of redemption, of somebody that's been to the gates of hell. I ain't never been to hell, and I'm grateful for it. But I've been to the gates of hell, and I've seen demons. So I know. If you like stories of redemption and how somebody could change their life and give it back to the community, read this book. Yes, that's that's amazing, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and tolerating my uh, lack of voice. I really appreciate you taking the ball and running with it, and I didn't have to talk much. Got your back, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, that's going to do it for, for this episode, guys. Uh, thank you, Joel, and uh, you have a great day, and good luck at your book signing. Thank you, brother. It's been an honor, man. You have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.